Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Now, <clears throat> to set up our time this morning, we have to mention what we have been talking about in past weeks in that we have to make a distinction between the ceremonial law of Moses and the Ten Commandments of God. This is important because it helps us understand what is said when we, or what is meant, when we either say or read, we're not under the law. Now this distinction was made clear last week as Paul contrasted the unrepentant practice of the works of the flesh. We were told the works of the flesh identify the practice of them, the unrepentant practice, practice identifies people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he contrasted this with the fruit of the Spirit. Remember we highlighted the fact that fruit is singular and therefore it is something that we all share. It is the attributes of every born again Christian. Now in Matthew 7, 15 to 23, Jesus, as he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, gave this warning. Beware of what? False, False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look Christian, they sound Christian, but they aren't Christian. Because inwardly, Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their what? Their fruits. Do men gather grapes? Now he makes an illustration of what he was explaining. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit, but a bad tree bears? Bad fruit. And then he says this, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree, remember this is an illustration, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In case you're wondering, that's bad. <laughs> Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father. And then he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then well, I, I will declare to them, Jesus speaking, I what? I never knew you. And then this point of identification is made. You who do what? Practice. Not occasionally fall into sin. Not stumble and fall into a pit. But you whose continual practice is what? Lawlessness. Now, the context here is addressing false teachers. But the scope of what Jesus is saying is all-inclusive. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You can go ahead and say amen to that. Amen. Now, as a matter of fact, remember, fruit is a point of identification of those who are saved. Now, he condemns those who call him Lord but don't know him and says, the reason I know you don't know me is by your practice of lawlessness. Now, remember, the Mosaic law had no provision within it to save the human soul. And therefore, the lawlessness Jesus is condemning them for practicing cannot be in reference to the law of Moses and must therefore be related to the moral code of God that we read the uh, characteristics of last week described as uh, the works of the flesh. Now, remember, Paul said those who have the fruit of the Spirit have crucified the flesh, meaning the works of the flesh or its lustful and even sensual desires. Now, we're told in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, that we are to know this, that in the last days, what kind of times will come? Perilous times will come. And then he describes the characteristics of humanity that make the last days perilous. For men will be lovers of what? Themselves. themselves. 
lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of what? Good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of... Is any of this going on today? <laughs> Rather than lovers of God. Now, I think it's noteworthy that the first human characteristic that is named as a flaw that it identifies the last days of being perilous is lovers of self. And when you love self, you're going to love money. Uh, you're going to be boastful. You're going to be prideful, which are the exact opposite of the attributes of the Christian character. Now, Paul would say to the church in Philippi in 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others, what? Better than himself. James 4, 6, uh, the Lord's half-brother says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists who? The proud. What's a characteristic of the last days that makes it perilous? People are proud, uh, prideful. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. Now, listen. The Christian life is not a me-first life. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Anybody else want to get on the bus? It's not a me-first life. As a matter of fact, it's been said that joy, which is something we ought to have, right? Joy is an acronym for how to have it. In other words, how you ought to live your life. Joy. Jesus. Others. You. That's how we are to live our life before God. Now, having made the case that not being under the law and having been called to liberty is not a nothing you ever do will be displeasing to God, as some teach today, Paul now moves to what is the walk in the Spirit aspect by the fruits of the Spirit, Christian life. Now, he introduced the topic and what we'll talk about this morning through what he said in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, through love, serve one another. Is that still true today? Yes. Now, our title this morning, I think any of you who have been here for any length of time know I like titles. I like double entendres. I like uh, twists on words and the other things that uh, we've encountered over the years. And I think you're going to like our title this morning. Are you ready for it today? Yes. Now, it's a, it's a twist on spelling, so to speak, and also a word we're hearing a lot of today about being essential. So today we're going to talk about, you ready? Yeah. The bare necessities. We're going to talk about the bare necessities. Mind your spelling on the word bare. It's not B-A-R-E, like minimalism. And we're going to talk about bearing one another's burdens and necessities obviously being a synonym for essentials. Now, we're not talking about Christians have to live with just the bare essentials. We're talking about the fact that it is necessary that we bear one another's burdens as the body of Christ. We are to help one another. We are to encourage one another. And Paul is going to tell us to bear one another's burdens. And then he's going to turn around and say a few verses later that each one must bear his own load. Are these contradictions? Not at all. They are explanations of the bare necessities of the Christian life. So, are you ready to examine the bare necessities of the Christian life and forget about your worries and your strife? <laughs> I like the last part, don't you? So would all you Baloo the Bears out there stand with me and let's understand the bare necessities. We're going to back up a couple of verses into chapter 5. We'll pick it up in 525 and then read down through and to 6, 5. 
So Galatians 5, 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. And Father, we are grateful this morning for our time in your matchless word once again this week, especially in the midst of all we see going on in our world. We thank you in the midst of lunacy that we can find clarity in your word, and we can find, Lord, uh, directions for our steps to help us make it through all the craziness of these perilous times. Teach us how to walk, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul begins with what walking in the Spirit is not. He says it's not conceited or envious. Now, this conceited implies a, a, an errant self-image, so to speak, or maybe even a misplaced self-importance, or we might say self-righteousness. And if we are conceited or self-righteous or have an errant self-image, we're going to have damaged relationships or tainted relationships with other people. And we'll see them deteriorate. And conceit is usually the cause, self-importance, so to speak. Now, this leads to provoking one another. That word means simply to be in competition with others. Are we in competition? No, no we're not in competition. We are the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, Envy obviously speaks of jealousy and points to it. And this reveals two basic mindsets within really the global community, but even within the church. And that is either a sense of superiority or a sense of inferiority. And Paul says this is not how we're to view ourselves as born again believers. We're not to envy another person's abilities and we're not to look at our own abilities as making us superior to other people for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, remember what we said last week about the difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, we were told, but one and the same Spirit, this is talking about the gifts, works all these things, the things previously described, distrib distributing to each one individually, what's the next three words? As he will. So who's in control? Who distributes the gifts of the Spirit? God, is it based on your worthiness? No. no, not at all. Anything we have in the realm of the gifts of the Spirit and callings of God have nothing to do with personal merit. Amen. Hello? They don't even have anything to do with personal abilities. I was thinking back, I've shared this in time past. In uh, junior high in particular, they used to have a habit of giving oral reports. You'd have to read a book and then give an oral report. And to me, that was the most petrifying thing that I could ever be asked to do. I hated it with a passion. I didn't want to get up and talk in front of other people and share what that book meant or meant or did not mean to me. Does God have a sense of humor? Yes. So what does he have me do now? I give oral book reports every single week. <laughs> and I have to say what I used to hate, I now love. I can't think of anything more enjoyable to do than to divide the word, rightly divide the word of truth with you. Now, None of us is any better or more valuable than another. None of us. 
is any better or more valuable than another, even though we have different assignments within God's kingdom. And with that in mind, Paul says, listen, with this spirit of equality, knowing that it's God who works and wills to do in us of his good pleasure, he says, now here's how you deal with the difficulties within the body of Christ. If anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual and not conceited or envious, restore such a one gently with the recognition, the self-recognition, that just because they fell and you didn't doesn't mean you're better. You have to remember you could fall too or pray to your own temptations. Now, Paul wrote back in chapter 3 in 26 to 28, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. He deals with ethnicity, he deals with status in life, and he deals also with our biological makeup. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And since we are all one, listen, there are no better thans amongst us. Amen. The only one that's better than us is Jesus. Amen? Amen? So, when someone is overtaken by a trespass, the goal of the spirit-led Christian will be to destroy them, not demean, or will be to restore them. <laughs> well, there's a Freudian slip there. Now, not demean them, or destroy them, but rather to restore them. Amen. Now, here's what that means as it pertains to the bare necessities. Now, our title is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, so our point, our opening one is as well. You ready for this? Yeah. Listen, our responsibility is to crucify our own flesh, not each other's. Amen. Our responsibility is to crucify our own flesh, not each other's. Uh, years and years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll say, the church is the only institution that uh, uh, executes its wounded. Aren't we supposed to restore each other? Aren't we supposed to help each other up? Now, <clears throat> the Greek word translated as restore is katartizo, and it has two biblical applications. In Mark 1.19, we're told when he, Jesus, had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the sons of thunder, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And then we find katartizo in 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, katartizo is translated as mending, when Jesus called uh, the two fishermen brothers, James and John. It implies the restored ability to catch fish. Was he not going to make them fishers of men? Yes. Is this not an important aspect of all of our lives and ministries is being able to rescue those drawn towards death? We are to help mend the nets of others and restore their fish catching ability, so to speak. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.10, it's translated as perfectly joined together. Now this employs the medical use, which means to reset a bone of the Greek word katartizo. And again, it implies the restored ability of function. Now, I don't see anything about throwing a net away because it doesn't work. We're supposed to do what? Mend it. Mend it because it has a hole in it. We fix it. Amen? Amen. 
And sometimes we get holes in our own usefulness. And we need to have those who are around us come alongside and help mend the net. And it's not talking about a permanent uselessness because someone was overtaken in a trespass. Now listen this morning. If never failing and never stumbling is the criteria for God to use us, we may as well all go sit on a mountain and contemplate our navels because he can't use any of us. (laughs) And just wait for Jesus to come, right? Now, we have to remember, it's the practice of a trespass uh, that is important. The unrepentant justification of sin in your own life and an unwillingness to agree with God's definitions of sins. Now listen, if someone is overtaken in any, listen, this is important, in any biblically defined trespass, not your opinion, not your denomination's opinion, but if anyone is overtaken in a biblically defined trespass, the spiritually mature thing to do is to restore them, not ignore them and not leave them needing mending. Now, you've all heard it, but it goes back to a tradition in the 16th century when a pious man named John Bradford was watching a man be escorted to the gallows, and he put his hand on his heart and said, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's how we're to deal with failures in the life of the Christian around us. God has been merciful, and but for the grace of God, I could be the person who fell. That's how we ought to look at one another. That's why we ought to restore one another. Anybody here messed up since you got saved? Aren't you glad you weren't kicked to the curb? Amen. Now, this is why we had to include verses 25 and 26 of chapter 5. We do not approach restoring someone with the attitude of, I would have never done that. I'm better than that, or any other type of attitude, or even saying, how could you have been so stupid? I'm glad I've never been stupid and done anything (laughs) stupid. I couldn't help but think of the story I heard about Pastor Chuck. When someone that he knew very well, news had come to him that his friend had committed adultery and had left his wife and was planning on beginning a relationship with this other person. And Pastor Chuck went to see the man in his uh, upstairs apartment, as I understand it, over a garage, having left his home and wife. And when Pastor Chuck arrived, he couldn't even talk to the guy. All he could do was cry. And the man was broken by Pastor Chuck's brokenness. And he broke off the relationship with this woman and went back to reconcile with his wife. You see, that's what it's all about. It's not about finger wagging. It's not about demeaning. It's not about any of these other things. And Paul's going to have more to say about our attitude when restoring someone else in a moment. But let's remember first and foremost, our responsibility is to crucify our own flesh, not each other's. That's where you say Amen. amen. Now, let's look at two and three again. Now, then Paul gives this directive under the inspiration of the Spirit. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives everybody else. He deceives who? You're only fooling yourself would be a way to say that. Now, Paul says that bearing one another's burdens is to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? 
love for one another. Now, this statement by Jesus is interesting in that this commandment was part of the law. It was already something that was written within the law back in Leviticus 19. Now, the law said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor at what? As yourself, I am the Lord. And Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. And then he quotes that old commandment. So what was the new part about it? Well, he took it next level when he said, you're to love each other like I love you. And this is a newness of the commandment as his love was then incorporated that we love each other as he has loved us, which will be evidence that we are his disciples. And remember, Jesus said in our theme verse for the year, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now remember, we learned about the yoke being an illustration as in that day it was a cultural norm for an older experienced ox to be yoked with a younger ox and train it and teach it how to pull the millstone and grind the grain and the other things we talked about earlier in the year. One was teaching the other how to do the job, so to speak. Jesus is saying, come to me, trade in carrying your burdens by yourself and take my yoke or yoke yourself to me and we'll carry the burdens of life together and I'll teach you how to get through them. Now, Paul says, when we do this with those who are burdened around us, we're being like Jesus. And thus we're fulfilling the law of Christ, which is to love each other as he loves us. Now, the word burdens and the word load seem to imply the same thing, but they're completely different Greek words with completely different meanings. Burdens implies an overwhelming burden, something too big for one person to carry. Uh, we might say that when life becomes unbearable for one, others are to come alongside and help them bear up under it. Now, the word load in verse 5 is more like a, a backpack. It's something singular, something that can only be carried by one. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, in Ephesians 4, 25 to 20, 29, Paul says, Therefore, putting away what? Lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. It's necessary that we edify one another, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, the context of these verses and those that follow is the crucifixion of the flesh. That would be our own. Now, the word corrupt simply means bad. And the phrase, but rather, indicates that what is good and necessary for edification is the opposite of what is bad, and that being corrupt words. We're not to use corrupt words when we're restoring one another. Where'd you go? We're not to use corrupt words when restoring one another. Bad words or be demeaning, as we talked about a few moments ago. We're to use instead words that build up, not words that tear down. And this is one of the bare necessities. As Paul goes as far to say, if anybody thinks himself above bearing others' burdens, they're deceiving themselves. And Christ-like love is the comparative. 
Now, did he not bear our burden of sin? Did we deserve it? No. Though our sin was our own choice and own fault, Jesus loved us and died for us anyway. And Paul says, love each other like Jesus loves you. Now, here's an observation concerning the bare necessities. And it's just a reality. And I think you'll find it to be true. Listen, love makes any burden seem lighter. Love makes any burden seem lighter. Amen. I mean, think of the story of the Good Samaritan in the context in which Jesus shared it. The context is set in Luke 10, 25 to 29, where a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now Jesus' answer was the story of the Good Samaritan. The story says a man lay half dead after being beat up and robbed, and a priest passed him, and crossed over to the other side of the road. A Levite then passed him, crossed over to the other side of the road, putting as much distance as possible between them and the half-dead man. And then Jesus went on to say in 33 to 37 of Luke 10, But a certain Samaritan whom the Jews hated, as he journeyed, came where he was. Jesus is telling him, The Samaritan's your neighbor, to answer your question, someone whom you hate. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an end, took care of him. On the next day he departed, took out two days' pay, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Then Jesus asked his lawyer, who was trying to justify himself, So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go on and keep doing what you're doing. No, he said, go thou and do what? Likewise. Now, the word compassion is kind of interesting and, and old school. It, it means to yearn in the bowels, meaning your gut, so to speak. And the bowels were believed to be the seat of love and pity or the heart of emotions. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, we might say one man's wounds were a gut punch to the other man. In other words, it broke his heart to see somebody in that condition. And therefore, love makes all burdens seem lighter. And we see this proven in all love relationships and deep human friendships. Bearing someone's burdens that you love is easy to speak encouragements to them. Shouldering burdens of life with them comes easy and natural. And this is what God says, I want to see you in the midst of my family. This is how I want all of us to operate or all of you to operate. The Lord is saying, I believe to us. Now, the Good Samaritan story also reminds us that the same burden sharing kind of love can be had for strangers. And Jesus told the inquiring lawyer who sought to justify himself, go and do what the Samaritan did as an expression of love and pity in obedience to God. Now, you don't have to know someone to bear their burdens. Amen. Right? Wait, there's more coming. You ready for this? You don't even have to like someone to bear their burdens. You know you can love someone and not like them? Yeah. 
Are there any sandpaper Christians who go to other churches? None come here, right? Why, why was that laughter nervous there? Now, listen. Here's what we're told to do. Agape love or a supernatural love like that of Jesus for us is going to lighten the weight of bearing other people's burdens. And by sharing the weight through coming alongside to help in practical ways, the person who is burdened tells them they're not alone. Isn't it good to feel like you're not alone sometimes? When you just feel like, I don't even know, and having the Elijah syndrome, I alone have left. Everybody else has forsaken the Lord, or nobody else knows what I'm going through, or the depth of my pain. It's good to know someone else cares. Amen. It's good to see someone is willing to help. And this lightens the load for them in and of itself. But listen, it also keeps the person who knew to do good and did not do it from coming under the burden of their own sin. Because Paul said in James 4, or James said in, Paul said in James, how about that? You learn all kinds of good stuff here, right? James said in 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is what? It's sin. And Paul's saying, hey, you can avoid the, the guilt or the shame of your own sin simply by coming alongside and helping others bear their own burdens when you know that something needs to be done. We need each other. Amen. And we need to remember that Paul is describing the sanctified life of walking in the Spirit with the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, these are the bare necessities of the Spirit-led life. So... Let's take a look at verse 5 and 6 once again. And then he says, having said, examine your own work, then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in each other, for each one shall bear his own load. I'm sorry, we're reading 4 and 5, not 5 and 6. Now, there are multiple interpretations derived from what is said here. All have truth within them, but I don't know that all are within the context of what we are reading. Now, some say this points to the Bema Seat of Christ. So we need to recognize, listen, everything you do is going to be judged by Jesus when you stand before the mercy seat. Now, that's going to happen, right? Yeah. We're going to stand before the mercy seat, but I think that's a departure from the context. I don't think that's what's being said here at all. Others say the lesson is don't worry about what other people are doing. Make sure your own walk and works are right before God, and you'll have joy within yourself for having done so. Now, that's true too, right? Huh? Yeah. Now, still others say that the lesson is there are some things you just have to bear alone and the burden cannot be shared. Things like the depth of the pain of the loss of a loved one or some other personal tragedy. Others can come alongside, can offer comfort, encourage, but the full weight of the burden can only be borne by the person who is going through it like that of a backpack. Now, these are all valid interpretations and realities of life. But again, we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to give an account of what he did, uh, what we did with the gifts he gave us. We are not to compare ourselves to other people and worry about what God is doing through them in comparison to what he gave to and is doing through us. And yes, some burdens must be borne alone. But I believe the way to look at this is within the context, and that will be established further by what we look at in a couple of weeks as we move on in chapter 6. Now, <clears throat> what I think is actually the interpretation 
is something that desperately needs to be heard today. And Paul covers it as well in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13. For he said, even for even when we were with you, we command you to do this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their neighbor's bread. No. <laughs> eat whose bread? Their own. their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as what? As a brother. Now the word load in verse 5 literally means an invoice. Figuratively, it means the obligations of Christ's followers. Now we're going to see this, as I said, more clearly when we return to chapter 6 after we examine our theme verse, or rather our month, our PowerPoint verse for the month of March next Sunday. But I believe while the other interpretations present precepts that are valid and true, the primary meaning is within the context of what we're reading. And that means that there are things that are personal responsibilities that are ordained by God for us all. Amen. Amen. Now, the reality is that in our day, these things are being shunned and they are being demeaned by those in places of power. God said, if anyone will not work, will implies the ability, but unwillingness. In other words, if anyone has the ability to work and don't want to work, then they should not eat. Why? Because hunger is a great motivation to go out and get a J-O-B. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Now, the Bible says they should eat their own bread, earn a living instead of going around like busybodies, occupying their time, causing disorder. Now, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul would also say this, but if anyone, say anyone, anyone. if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, you know, I've heard people over the years say that work was part of the curse. We need to remember that God put Adam to work before Adam fell. He put him in the garden to tend and keep the garden. Why? Because working, earning, providing, all keeps us mentally stable, emotionally stable, and able to function and caring for ourselves and giving us a sense of accomplishment and all the other things we're seeing our government today trying to take away from people and causing the perilous times that we have today, or at least contributing to them. And I think what Paul's primary meaning is to do what he did regarding liberty. He's cautioning against abusing it. He's cautioning against abusing bearing one another's burdens. He's balancing his teaching as he did with the issue of liberty, that while we're saved by grace through faith as a gift from God, that doesn't mean that there's no moral responsibilities for the saved. In other words, the directive to bear one another's burdens is not to be abused as license to be one another's burdens and not work and demand others take care of us and use scripture as our uh, support. Uh, we were in Malawi some years ago doing a pastor's conference, a pastor's and leader's conference. And in, during the Q&A session, one guy actually asked the question. He said, 
My pastor told me, now remember, this is a country that has been ranked the poorest in the world more times than we could even count uh, since this became a nation uh, uh, half a century ago. And this guy said, my pastor told me that God told him that I was supposed to give him my TV. Do I have to? <laughs> Uh, my answer had two letters in it, and the first letter was N, and the other was, oh, no. You know, we don't abuse these things. We don't take them uh, and, and use them for our own advantage. Now, the word of caution that we're to each bear our own load is that we don't abuse the kindness of other people. Amen? Amen. With the implied understanding that there are people around us who can't care for themselves, and they absolutely need to have us come alongside and bear the burdens. And they are distinguished from those who won't. And there are those who can't. Amen? Amen. Now, here's the last of the bare necessities. Listen this morning. Christians should treat others like family, or treat each other like family, because we are one. Amen. Christians should treat each other like family because we are one. Now, we often talk about blood relatives to describe our closest relatives, but what we need to remember is that we are blood relatives, but the blood isn't our own. It's the blood of Jesus that has made us a family. And the blood of Jesus made us one body. The blood of Jesus made us one family. And we all have one common Savior, one common Father, and one common Holy Spirit who is in us all. And in John 1, 12 to 13, John the Beloved said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, and not through human means, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. When we're born again, we become part of the family of God. Amen. And listen, since we became family, not in the sense of human birth, but in the sense of being born again, we're his family. And as his family, we bear one another's burdens. As his family, we seek to restore one another when someone is overtaken in a trespass, and we should each do our share in these things, meaning to bear our own load. We don't model ourselves after the world. Now, I've said this before, and we need to remember what the Bible says quite clearly is that socialism is a sin. God does not want people relying on the government for provision. He wants people working, gaining a sense of accomplishment and provision. And as Paul said, let him who uh, stole steal no longer, but let him work with his own hands so that he may have something to give him who is in need. Bear one another's burdens. Amen. Now, we don't model ourselves in the world we are after the world. We don't climb over each other. We lift each other up. We don't say when someone falls, they got it coming. We say, but for the grace of God, that could have been me. Now in Acts 2, 44 to 47, we're told now all the family of God, the church who believed were together. And they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing as time allowed and their schedules and all the other events of life left them. No, continuing what? Daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food 
with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were what? Being saved. Now listen, this is an, an endorsement of communal living. We don't need to uh, go to Montana and move together and live in a big commune type situation. This was more the matter, as it says here, simplicity of heart. You know what? Uh, I got this and, and I can help somebody uh, with that. That thing that God has blessed me with can be a blessing to somebody else. And listen, we are to live as a community of believers like a family. Even though we may have different zip codes and street addresses and all the other things. And even different gifts and callings from God. The fact is we are God's children. And thus we are God's family. And thus when we have a love for one another, as we show that to each other, love is going to lighten any burden because that's what happens with family. And the one who has the burden lightened is going to be blessed. The one who lightens the burden of another is going to be blessed. And it keeps them from having their own guilt then added upon them. And listen, bearing one another's burdens is a necessity of the Christian life. These are the bare necessities. And this is what's being described to us by Paul. That we are to take care of ourselves and take care of other people. Amen. And do whatever we can when we have the opportunity, uh, as each one has received a gift, Peter would say, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace has been manifested tremendously in each of our lives, right? So we don't sit around and say, well, you know, gosh, I wish I could do what that person does, or I wish I had what that person does. You know, we take the attitude that Job had. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be what? The name of the Lord. Listen, when we get to heaven, there aren't going to be streets exclusive to certain Christians. Your feet are going to walk down the streets of gold. You're going to have access to Jesus. We're all, though, we'll have levels of rewards. There's no question about that, as uh, each will receive a reward for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. There's no question about that. But listen, we're all going to be in the same place. And we're all going to be in, in heaven. And, you know, when Jesus, I, I've always found it interesting that in John 14, we have to remember that what Jesus said uh, about coming again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. This was at the Last Supper. But wouldn't you think that the last thing that somebody said before they were executed would be pretty important? So Jesus said at the Last Supper, in his last conversation directly, in a teaching manner with the disciples, hey, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And he said, what I'm going away to do is to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. And then he said, in my Father's house are many, what? I cannot for the life of me figure out why people try and play that down. You know, they, well, the word means dwelling places, like we're gonna live in the projects in heaven. <laughs> What do you think heaven's going to be like? Listen, if the walls of the city have gates that are comprised of a single pearl, if the city has 12 foundations made of precious stones, if the streets are made of gold, I don't think he's building shacks for us to live in in heaven. Amen? Amen? Amen. And this is where we're going, and we need to keep that in mind all the time. So listen, uh, I think it's, it's fitting that today, in particular, along with this passage, we introduce the 316 mission. 
Listen, that's the most important thing we're going to do in life is tell people about Jesus. You know what? And some people, like Pastor Greg Laurie or Billy Graham, preach to hundreds of thousands or even millions. Other people have the gift. You ever run into one of those people? We got people here that are like walking evangelists. I mean, how they get the door open to share the gospel with every single person they meet, I can't figure out. But God gave them that gift, right? Do all of you have it? No. Is sharing the gospel intimidating to some of you? Most of you? Yeah, exactly. But listen, who distributed those gifts? So are you doing with what you do have what you should do with what he gave you? That's the real question. You know, I'm not a street evangelist. Well, you know what? You can post John 3.16 if you've got social media. You can quote John 3.16. You can do, as I've encouraged you in time past, you can do the hit-and-run evangelism. You can go up to the drive-thru, order your food, yell Jesus in the window, and then hit the gas. Because, remember, Jesus means his name in long form is Yehoshua, which means God is salvation. Is that not the gospel? Yes. So listen, there's power in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you believe that? Yes. So listen, whatever gift God gave you, he gave it to you for his glory and for the purpose of telling others. He gave us all the power to be witnesses, Acts 1.8, and we ought to be witnesses even to the end of the age. Now that may manifest itself in one way to some and another way to others, but we all need to be pulling at the oars because we're all in the same boat. And if God gifted one with the gift of street evangelism and not another, the one who doesn't have that gift still needs to tell people about Jesus, even if it all, all it is is just shouting his name in the drive through window. <laughs> tell people about Jesus. Amen? Yes. Part of the bare necessities. And Father, we are grateful once again this morning for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body. We thank you for this place that you have provided. We thank you for... Lord, uh, all in this room and all that they represent. Lord, we thank you. There's miracles in this room. There's healing in this room. There's restored relationships in this room. There's bonds broken in this room. There's chains that have fallen off represented by the people in this room. And Lord, you've done all that. And so we give you glory for that. And Lord, I pray that we, through what Paul wrote under the inspiration of your spirit, would handle things biblically in the future when we encounter one overtaken in a trespass. And Lord, we recognize you told us not to have unfruitful, uh, to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We understand all those things and we understand even how strongly you spoke against false teaching. But Lord, help us to deal better with brothers and sisters who love you who get hung up in something and their flesh wins a battle for a day or a moment or even a week or longer. Help us, Lord, in the gentle spirit that we have from you to seek to restore them and not destroy them. Help us in that, we pray. We need to be better at it, we admit. And help us, Lord, to be thankful for whatever it is you have given us in the realm of the gifts of the Spirit, knowing none of us have earned it nor deserve any of it. So we give you thanks and high praise this morning. And we do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.